This week on Geek Explained, with the latest installment of Tom Cruise's spy thriller saga hitting theaters, we're taking a look back at the series as a whole and discussing some comics to read after you see the movie. So join me as I rank every Mission Impossible movie from worst to best and give you an intro to spy comics. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is all about Dan 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 Mission Impossible. I am absolutely stoked, if you could not tell, that this week, as of recording, marks the release of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, the latest installment of the Mission Impossible franchise. I've been a big fan of the series for a very long time, and I have been on Mission Impossible Mania for the last, oh, about a month or so. And so I am dedicating this week's episode to that franchise, but not just to Mission Impossible, because I hear what you're thinking, listener. Eric, I know you're really excited about Mission Impossible. I am too. Hey, I'm glad we're on the same page about this. But I also want to read some comics that kind of get me in the zone of Mission Impossible. Well, dear listener, I'm glad you mentioned that because not only are we going to be taking a look at the Mission Impossible franchise and ranking every single movie, in my personal opinion, from best to worst, we're also going to be scratching that comics itch by letting you know five comics that you should check out as an introduction to the spy genre of comic books. Now, these are not going to be the end-all, be-all, these are the only spy comics you should read, but if you are either A, a spy thriller movie fan and want to get into comics, or B, a comics fan that wants to enjoy more of the spy thriller genre, I'm going to be letting you know five books that you should check out to read once you are done watching the movie, once you're done getting ready to prep to see the movie. You can you can read these books before, dur- well, probably not during because you're going to be watching the movie. So before and after watching Mission Impossible Dead Wrecking Part 1. These are five comics that I think you should be checking out. But this week is not just big because of Mission Impossible. There have been a ton of stuff. Two big things I want to talk about. First thing, I have to talk about it. You know I have to talk about it. My Adventures with Superman. I... Oh, man, I watched the first two episodes of this show, and I have tons of thoughts. If you are interested in me doing a review on my adventures with Superman, I don't want to get too much into it here because that's not really what this episode is about. But I really want to talk about this show. So if you want me to uh, review this at some point, um, let me know because I'd love to talk about it. But overall... 
absolutely adored it. And then the other big piece of news as of this recording is that we got the first look at Hugh Jackman in Deadpool 3. Last week, we got the set photos of Ryan Reynolds. I almost said Ryan Johnson, and I know that's not the right person. We saw Ryan Reynolds in his new sleek Deadpool 3 costume, really minor changes when it comes to the costume a little bit of extra black here a few fewer holsters there but looks functionally the same hugh jackman my friends does not they gave him the yellow spandex and he looks incredible we got reports near the beginning of the weekend this past weekend as of this recording that he was going to be donning a suit similar to the Astonishing suit, which you know how much I love that Astonishing X-Men run. And I got really excited about this. They also mentioned that he would be wearing sleeves, which I was less excited about. But seeing the actual photo, they, they leaked it, it was blurry, and then the Deadpool Twitter handle just gave us the high-res photo. And he looks great. The two of them walking next to each other, Deadpool and Wolverine. Hugh Jackman does not look like he has aged a day since 2015. And he looks phenomenal in this suit. Um, Obviously, there's all of the tactical military garbage that you see on a lot of, especially Marvel uh, costumes. I think, I hope that they mention that it is hilarious how... Oh, man, you know, we're finally an MCU movie. We got to give Wolverine a high-tech looking, way too over-designed military costume. (laughs) But I honestly really like it. I don't think think it's that bad. Again, I don't like the sleeves. I don't like the incorporation of the sleeves. I have a feeling it's so that they can get away with having Hugh not have to bulk up a ridiculous amount so that he can just be in the suit it would be really cool to see him sleeveless but i mean it's it's neither here nor there it is what it is i am still really excited about it and i'm even more excited that they decided to say look we all know that hugh jackman has sported a variety of quaffs as Wolverine over the years. But we are going to pick the best one, which is, of course, his look from the Wolverine. Yeah, I said it. The Wolverine has the best Hugh Jackman Wolverine hair. You can come at me with your X-Men Origins or your X-Men Ones. The Wolverine has the best X-Men Wolverine haircut. He just does, especially for the Hugh Jackman that we have come to know. It just fits his face better it gives all the accoutrements that you would want to see out of a wolverine in live action he looks great costume looks great i'm really excited hopefully we'll be seeing more and hopefully we're gonna see a freaking mask on him that was the one thing i was like wear the mask wear the cowl where is this helmet that he's going to be wearing because he's got to wear it even if it's just for that stupid throwaway like oh i gotta wear the mask and then toss it off this scene or Ryan Reynolds being like, no, 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 you can only wear the mask once and then you have to take it off for the rest of the movie. You know it's got to be there. I am really, really excited to see this. And it again gives me hope that we're getting the yellow and blue kind of out of the way so that when the character eventually does come to the MCU, he can be in the brown and tan, baby. Or, in a perfect world, the black and orange. Where are my X-Men Evolution fans? 
That one's for us. But it looks great. He looks great. I'm really excited to learn more. May of 2024 cannot come soon enough. But that's it for the little roundup of news that I wanted to talk about over the past week. Uh, We've also got not just our main event. We also have our latest weekly review on the sort of newest episode of Secret Invasion. It's always tough doing this and recording this, dropping this episode on Wednesdays, because Secret Invasion also comes out on Wednesdays, so I'm always a week behind. But I'll be talking about the most recent episode of Secret Invasion, and of course we have this week's Comics Countdown, where I'll be chatting you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week. So make sure you stay tuned after the jump for that, but for now, let's roll right on into the main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, as I count down and rank every single Mission Impossible movie and give you, yes you, an intro to Spy Comics. You can't fight the friction! Good morning, afternoon, or evening, dear listener. Mission Impossible was a television series airing on the CBS network that ran from September 1966 to September 1973. It then experienced a revival from the years of 1988 to 1990 before being spun off in 1996 into a very successful film franchise. Tom Cruise has helmed the ship from the first film all the way now to its seventh installment this week as of this recording in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Your mission, dear listener, should you choose slash decide to accept it, is to sit down, take stock of this franchise that has been going on for almost as long as I've been alive, and rank objectively the best to worst films in this franchise. Also, I would ask that you take a look at your own comic fandom. Look at the series that you have loved and cherished, and remember, there is a spy among you. You do not know where, you do not know when. Look to your left, look to your right. They're both spies. You need to get out of there. As always, should you or any of your fellow Geeksplained listeners be caught or killed during this ranking of the Mission Impossible franchise, the secretary of your chosen country will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This podcast will self-destruct in, let's say, about an hour. Good luck, dear listener. Here we are celebrating the release of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. I cannot believe that we are getting two big cliffhangers in the same year for two of my favorite franchises, Fast and the Furious and Mission Impossible. I can't wait for the end of Dead Reckoning Part 1 to be Tom Cruise and the rest of his merry band at the base of a dam. (laughs) 
as the villain breaks open the dam, the water rushes down, and then we hit the end credits. I am really excited. I've been a fan of the Mission Impossible series for a good long while now. It's been around for as long as I can remember. The first film came out when I was just four years old. And I feel like I've grown up with the franchise. And maybe that's why I love it so much. Nostalgia is a hell of a thing. And I dearly love each and every one of these films in their own special way. But today, I have to be the person who takes on the difficult task of ranking every single one of these films from best to worst. As of this recording, I have not seen Dead Reckoning Part 1, so I will be ranking the first six films in the franchise. As I mentioned before... This used to be a TV show. It was one of your old school spy TV shows that were all the rage in the late 60s. And they spun it off as a continuation. The show happened. The show happened in the world of the films. And I think people kind of forget that. That there is an entire world that was set up over the course of, what is it, uh, seven, eight, nine years. And... That wasn't even the beginning of the films, which have been going since 1996. And it's really cool to kind of look at how the series has evolved. Much like Fast and the Furious, it was very dead set on being a specific genre. And though it has more or less stuck to that genre, it's also expanded outwards and become much, much bigger than any, I would argue, any kind of spy film before it. You know, we have our James Bonds that are about a singular character being portrayed by many different actors in many different stories, in many different eras and styles of storytelling. There is one Ethan Hunt. There is one Mission Impossible crew stretched across a few... Uh, films, give or take a couple one-off appearances. This has been one long story, which in a way is really fun because you get to see a character grow and evolve and be sometimes a completely different character from movie to movie. So it's really cool for me to sit down and rewatch these and get to rank them, in my personal opinion, from best to worst. And when I say best to worst... I do not mean any of these are objectively bad. They're not. You can complain all you want about stylistic choices and directing, but none of these films are bad movies. I enjoy all of them, so this was quite difficult to put together. So, alongside that, to alleviate myself of the pressure, I decided to also make this a two-for-one episode where I get to rank the Mission Impossible films while also parlaying that into my love of comic books, which, as you know, this is primarily a comic book podcast. So getting to imbue my comics podcast with a little bit of that Mission Impossible spy craft fandom that I've had since I was a very small wee lad uh, has been really fun. I'm going to be giving you what I am calling an intro to spy comics, and these are five books that I believe if you are either an 
intro to the spy genre or if you're an intro into reading comics but you're a fan of either one are great books for you to read are all-time stories and you should absolutely be checking out to get yourself in the mood both before and after watching mission impossible this week but let's lead with the films. Six films to rank here. I am very excited to uh, see the seventh film. But going into this list, this was incredibly difficult, as I have said. Because every movie, for the most part, up until probably like the last two, are so different from each other, right? The first film is very, very old school 90s spy thriller. While the second movie is in the throes of the Matrix era, where everything has to be in slow-mo, everything has to be incredibly stylistic, and Tom Cruise has maybe his worst haircut? He's had a lot, but this might be his worst. And then from 3, we get this everyman caught in a spy uh, conspiracy. And then kind of from Ghost Protocol on, we've really dug into these being kind of joint adventure spy heist films and all of them have that specific mission impossible flair that you've come to know and love in these films but you get to see the characters the story and ethan hunt as our main protagonist evolve over time so you get to see not just the evolution of these characters but the evolution of these movies and i find that incredibly fascinating so let's dig into this from one to six from best to worst it number at number six at number six again this was very difficult but it had to be Mission Impossible 2. Uh, this came out in the year 2000, directed by John Woo, and this was maybe the biggest what-if movie for me when it comes to not even the movie itself. Let me give you some context here. The main villain of this film is played by Doug Ray Scott. Doug Ray Scott, you might not know if you are not a fan of Mission Impossible or some of the other films that he's been in. Let's look at his uh, quick IMDb here. We've got uh, Things to Do Before You're 30, Heist, Desperate Housewives, Hitman, Love's Kitchen, Death Race 3, Inferno. He also popped up in Doctor Who. I forgot he was in Doctor Who. Uh, he was in Taken 3. He's He was in... Oh, that's right. He was in Batwoman. That's right. If you're a fan of Batwoman, he was Jacob Kane. He was... Uh, he was Kate Kane's dad. But besides all that, Doug Ray Scott was also almost Wolverine. Let me cast you back to the late 90s when we're getting ready for the very first cinematic X-Men film. And they had their hearts dead set, they being the filmmakers, that Doug Ray Scott would be Logan James Howlett. Except Doug Ray Scott also got cast in Mission Impossible 2 as the main villain. And Mission Impossible 2 is a sequel of a proven box office success. X-Men... We don't know what's going to happen with this movie. Superhe the superhero film Golden Age is a long ways away from the year 2000. And he wanted to, and I'm paraphrasing here because I obviously haven't talked to him or met the man, 
decided to go with what he believed was the sure bet. Go with Mission Impossible and dig into a, I would say, fairly memorable Mission Impossible villain in the film. And abandon his commitment as Wolverine in this new Maybe It'll Work, Maybe It Won't X-Men film. As we all know, following this, the casting team scrambled and ended up casting a Australian theater major named Hugh Jackman. And I think it worked out pretty well for old Huey boy. So Doug Ray Scott, almost our Wolverine, and now with the news of Wolverine's new costume, can you imagine Doug Ray Scott in that costume? I can't. I'll let you know that right now. But I think it worked out for the best. Doug Ray Scott's a fantastic villain, if maybe not the most like exciting out of all the villains on this uh, in this series, but I like him. I think he's fun. I think he casts a really nice uh, uh, contrast to Tom Cruise and his character of Ethan Hunt, but he's not the only big name on this cast list. Uh, Tandy Newton, who you may recognize from Westworld, plays the femme fatale uh, love interest for Ethan Hunt in this film, and she is dynamite. She always has been, always will be. She is incredible. This also gives us our very first appearance of Ving Rhames as Luther Stickle. I am a big fan of Luther in these movies, and Ving Rhames was cast to per. But of course, this is Tom Cruise's show. This is Tom Cruise at his most Tom Cruise. In the year 2000, Tom Cruise is at the top of the world. He kind of still is, but he's not immediately at on the tip of the tongue of everybody in Hollywood. Which is hilarious, considering it's Tom Cruise. Maybe our last great film actor. Who knows? But this movie was such a large jump from the first movie. It's such a huge change, right? The film as it stands feels like a completely different film and could have been in a completely different series from that first um, Mission Impossible film. Mission Impossible 1 played it very straight. Mission Impossible 2 decided to get... Woo crazy. And what do I mean by that? I mean the director of this film, of course, John Woo, who turned this into one of the most stylized, action-oriented spy movies I've ever seen. Is it big on spycraft? Yeah, a little bit. Is it big on uh, intrigue and political machinations? No, not really. Does it mostly take place in Australia and feature some sick motorbike stunts? You better believe it. And the slow-mo, my God, the slow-mo. I, it's it's funny. I love this movie for all of its, its aesthetic choices. And even though it's not really a solid film when it comes to the plot, when it comes to uh, some of the writing... It's a really fun popcorn movie. It's an enjoyable time, but it's not really what I look for in a Mission Impossible movie. I look for, you know, action which has got, 
really stunning characters, which is kind of lacking in, and a moral dilemma as Ethan Hunt becomes more and more deranged as an individual. <laughs> and here, they, again, this was a sharp left turn from the first movie, both in its presentation as well as in the characterization of Ethan Hunt, who is just this psychopath in the second movie. is an absolute monster. But it's a fun movie that you kind of have to turn your brain off to enjoy. However, it is at the bottom of the list for me. Now at number five, and again, the, these are these are very difficult to rank, let me just tell you. At number five of the original Mission Impossible film. Now, Mission Impossible uh, released in 1996. This was uh, directed by Brian De Palma, and this was Tom Cruise really selling himself as the next guy. You know, he'd been in other films before, um, risky business. He was in, uh, obviously Top Gun, but Mission Impossible was his breakout. Mission Impossible was where we got Tom Cruise put on the map. And it is a true blue spy thriller in the vein of the previous iterations. I think something that holds this back is it is so beholden to the series that came before, which, listen, I'm a basic bitch for continuity. You know I'm a lore boy. But the tone of the film feels very much like a made-for-TV movie just with a bigger budget. And that's not to be disparaging. I've seen some incredible made-for-TV movies. But when you kind of look at the film as a whole across the series, it is kind of the weakest in bombast and the weakest in action. Now... That is not to say that it does not have uh, positive factors, because it absolutely does. It's what kicked off the whole franchise. Tom Cruise is still in his I'm willing to do anything as long as I get to showcase how fast I can run. And there's such a kind of devil-may-care vibe around him that is more focused here than I think in any other film where you can see him kind of, like, simmering at the surface. He's like, I am a psychopath, but I'm trying really hard not to be a psychopath. I'm on, like, my 90-day psychopath sobriety chip, and I really need to hold on to this. So he is this character who came from, like, he was part of a team that was filled with this cast, okay? Listen, listen to this cast. John Voigt. Okay, we've got, I've, was Ving Rhames in the first movie? Ving Rhames was in the first movie. I don't think he appeared a bunch. No, 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 he was in the first movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Strike whatever I said about him being in the second movie and that being his first appearance there. But Ving Rhames is in this movie. Does an incredible job. But we also have, I mean, looking at so Emilio Estevez. Emilio Estevez is in this movie. I mean, come on. Like we've we have this whole you know, we have this whole story of Ethan Hunt. His entire team is killed. He's framed. He needs to clear his name while also going against the um the organization that built him. And we find out that John Voigt, who was his uh who is his mentor, is the villain of the film. John Voigt incredible actor wonderful fucking performer and the two of them across from each other works so well this is also again 
watching everything you would normally expect to see in a spy movie just be played completely straight and completely to the letter. This is very clean in how it handles its action, its writing, its... Um, its set pieces, the spy narratives, the twists, the turns, everything is very clear, very concise, very clean. And by that, I mean it can get kind of predictable. And if you've seen one, you know, one spy film, you've seen this film. And again, that is not disparaging this film. I obviously ranked it above uh, Mission Impossible 2. But stylistically, it is your classic Mission Impossible with no thrills, no spills, no daffodils. And there is something to how kind of wacky in some areas that the series gets later on. But as a foundation for this series, I think it does a great job and really gets you into the zone of what these films are going to be. It establishes Ethan Hunt, who, again, I cannot stress enough, is a completely different character from Ethan Hunt's two through six. And it's really, it's fascinating to see where the film business was, where Tom Cruise was, and where the Mission Impossible franchise was in the mid-90s and where it would develop from there. So it's at number five, not terrible, but not a real standout. It does everything right, and that's kind of what makes it drop in the standings here. But at number, what is this, four? At number four, we have Mission Impossible 3. I freaking love Mission Impossible 3. Mission Impossible 3 is the film that I first remember seeing in the theaters. I was too young to see Mission Impossible uh, 1 and 2 in theaters. I didn't really, like... I, I wasn't really a theater-going kid when I was young. The first, and I, I've talked about this before, the first Batman movie I ever saw in theaters was Batman and Robin in the very late 90s. And so Mission Impossible 3 was the first Mission Impossible movie I got to see in theaters and really, like, appreciate, right? This brings everything back around to Ethan Hunt as a character and it's interesting, right? Because at this point he's retired, he's, you know... Doing his domestic goddess deal. He's got a wife or a fiance. I think it's a fiance. Uh, fiance uh, Julia, who is uh, just the most basic damsel in distress character that gets a bunch of characterization later on in the series. But Michelle Monaghan, again, does a phenomenal job. She's wonderful. Um, but Ethan Hunt is basically thrust into a espionage syndicate deal at the behest of Philip Seymour Hoffman, who plays Owen Davian, one of the best villains in the entire series. Uh, this film came out in 2006, so it was a long hiatus between, uh, between the films. First film came out in 96, second film came out in 2000. Six years later, we get the third one. And this film, which is directed by J.J. Um, Abrams, still at the very beginning of his career. I think this was his first, uh, his first directed film, at least his first big directed film. And you can tell that he kind of came from TV because I think he was coming off of Alias. And again, you get the guy who does Alias to do Mission Impossible. It feels like 
a match made in heaven. But you get to see that it's also kind of a more intimate and I don't want to say low budget, but it's a more... Um, I also don't want to use the gritty or realistic imagining of Mission Impossible. Well, I get it. I, I guess it kind of does kind of fit into that because it's not as bombastic as, you know, installments four through, I'm sure, seven. But you do get to see kind of the crystallization of Ethan Hunt as a character who is, again, a completely different character from the second movie, who is a maniac. And... In the third movie, he is this normal guy, or he feels like this normal guy who retired from active duty, and he is thrust into action beyond his dreams because his fiance has been kidnapped by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Who who of us hasn't been there? I mean, come on. Uh, we also do get appearances by uh, Jonathan Rhys Myers, which is great, Billy Crudup, and Lawrence Fishburne? I mean, Lawrence Fishburne, come on. Uh, we also get the introduction in this film of Simon Pegg's Benji, who is maybe the best character in the series. It's tough, right? It's very tough. But for a long-standing character, and I would argue someone who's kind of developed just as much, if not more, than Ethan Hunt, it's gotta be Benji, right? It's gotta be Benji. He doesn't have a huge influence on this film, but he does later on. And you can kind of see the Fast and Furious effect taking hold in this as they keep plucking different people from different films to eventually come together as a solid group for the last half of the series. But this film has, I mean, action, high octane, car chases, fights, one of the best uh, confrontation and interrogation scenes between Philip Seymour Hoffman and Tom Cruise. It's a great film. And there's something to this desperation that he has in the film. It's He is on a ticking clock. He is being employed by Philip Seymour Hoffman to pull off these missions. And there is something about a desperate Tom Cruise that is so compelling to watch. And I don't mean that as like the person, but as in a performance aspect, Tom Cruise is just an absolute marvel to watch work. And he is terrifying to look at in some of these. Uh, this was one of the first big films where you got to see him really run. And boy, howdy, does he run. It's a fantastic showcase of who Tom Cruise wants Ethan Hunt to be going forward. And from here, you kind of get to see him really uh, cement himself as like, no, I'm an action hero. And I that means I have to stay stalwart. I have to be a pillar in a river. I have to let stuff go by me. Other characters can be funny. I have to be deadly serious. I'm going to be next time deadly serious next time. And it's really... It's not a film that I think is the most rewatchable of these films. We'll get to it. But it's one of those films that you look at as like, this was the turning point for the series. Much like its contemporary Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift, which let me tell you is a stronger movie than this. I will die on that hill. I am imbued with the power of anime thanks to my adventures with superman and i will be defending tokyo drift until i die but my 
pick for number four, Mission Impossible 3, is a hell of a strong film with one of the best villains in the entire series. Maybe the, arguably the best if you, you know, run in certain circles. But I really do love this film and it's a great evolution of the franchise. And now here is where it gets real difficult, gang. Because the top three could literally fall anywhere. All of these films are incredibly strong. All of these films give us the action and bombast that you want. But all of these films also came out in a very specific release order. Which means number three is Ghost Protocol. I adore this film. Because this is going back to the very first film and saying, what if we made that? really freaking good what if we took this first mission impossible movie and made it fun and that's what they do in this film uh released in 2011 and was ah, directed by brad bird our boy brad bird i freaking love brad bird i have not watched a brad bird movie that i have disliked um Incredibles fame is what most people know him for, but what he did to revitalize this series, again, five years after the previous film, is just, it's remarkable. We wouldn't have the following two films without Ghost Protocol. And it's so wild to me that in this space of what have you done for me lately Hollywood everyone kind of forgets that Ghost Protocol is one of the best spy and action films of the decade it never pops up in top 10 lists and I get it a lot of great films came out in 2010 and in the ensuing 10 years after that but this film constantly gets overlooked and I am shocked at the amount of people who do that I kind of maybe have a theory as to why but with that let's dig into this movie so mission impossible ghost protocol sees ethan hunt being broken out of a moscow prison alongside good friend and newly appointed i guess uh agent benji who is back from the previous movie and the two of them are kind of the backbone of this film uh we find out that uh ethan lost his wife julia uh in an undisclosed manner though later on uh we find out that it was due to the actions of new character William Brandt, played by Jeremy Renner. And this, the move for this was really interesting to me. Because William Brandt is set up as this pencil pusher, and it's like, oh, he has these crazy fighting skills. And Jeremy Renner is fantastic. This is during the uh, Jeremy Renaissance, where he is popping up in literally everything. Uh, he's got the town. He's got uh, Hurt Locker. He's got Avengers at this point. Thor. And he absolutely crushes this. And you can kind of tell that producers and all this were kind of grooming him as a backup for Ethan Hunt. William Brandt would be the new lead going forward because Tom Cruise is getting a little old. 
But somebody should have told Tom Cruise because he immediately said, this is my movie, this is my franchise. Brant can be a supporting player in Ethan Hunt's story, baby. But we find out that uh, Brant was a former IMF agent who failed to stop the assassination of Julia. We find out later, of course, that she is alive and that it was fake to give her an identity and a life away from Ethan. One of the most touching endings in the entire series, by the way. But we have our ragtag crew that is not just alienated as a group. They are alienated as an organization. The ghost protocol in the title is the U.S. government going, the IMF? Who is she? I don't know her. And disavowing them completely. So we get to see them on the run battling against Cobalt, a.k.a. Kurt Hendricks, played by Michael Nykvist. Uh, just a really fun villain. Not, I don't think, as compelling as Philip Seymour Hoffman in the previous film. But Michael Nykvist is great in this movie. It's a really fun time uh, where we get to see some of the best Tom Cruise running that Tom Cruise ever ran. And it's... The thing I kind of love about this, right, is that you get to see what happens to these characters when things kind of go wrong. And what I love about this is that it takes, like I said, all the stuff that you love about the first movie, the spycraft, the political intrigue, the compelling characters, but puts it through a filter of realism and not in the way of like it has to be gritty and everything shaky cam, though there is plenty of that. It's these are characters who are constantly having to pivot and rework plans as they are happening. This is heist movie tenants put into a spy movie. And I kind of love that. Um, the idea that, you know, the face mask machine kind of busts while they're trying to make it, which has been a tenet of the entire Mission Impossible franchise. When uh, Tom Cruise is scaling the building in Mumbai right before uh, Brian and Dom drive a car through the building, uh, one of the gloves stops working. So he has to maneuver his way into the building. It's just really cool to see, to see stuff fail. And... I mean, the, the whole hologram thing with the hallway, like, it's just a wonderful film about being resourceful and being so good at what you do that when things go wrong, you still pull it off. And again, that is heist movie making 101 and them deciding to put that because Brad Bird is a genius into the stylings of a spy movie masterfully done it's one of those films that i think is one of if not the most rewatchable out of the entire series both from an action standpoint a pacing standpoint a character standpoint it's just good all around um it does falter in the fact that uh luther doesn't really show up uh ving rames shows up a little bit at the very end to give them a new mission and again, there is that push-pull of, is Brandt the new lead? But it's still one of my favorite spy movies ever, of all time. And it deserves this top three spot. It is just eked out by the top two. And at number two, I think surprisingly, for me at least, 
It's Mission Impossible Fallout, the latest installment before, of course, Dead Reckoning Part 1 as of this recording. Uh, Mission Impossible Fallout is just a masterfully done film. And if we were grading it just on the trailers alone, this would be number one by a country mile because that that trailer is one of the best movies I've ever seen. Can't fight the friction! Like, I... I watch that trailer at least once a week. It is so, it gets the adrenaline going, your heart's pumping, and this was the I think the culmination of what the franchise can achieve. Uh, released in 2018, again the most recent as of this recording release, uh, was directed by Christopher McQuarrie, which was the very first time that a director had ever come back for a Mission Impossible film. And I think that was something kind of magical about the series beforehand, where every single director brought a new flavor to the series. But Macquarie and Tom Cruise worked so well together in Rogue Nation that they just, they had to run it back. And seeing them, I think at the height of their power is just it's it's phenomenal this does also kind of play as a part two to the previous film which i think is why they brought back uh macquarie and why there's so many um there's so many uh plot lines that are kind of carried over from the first film which very rarely ever happened previously in the series but this cast i mean come on Tom Cruise is Ethan Hunt. We've got him there. But our big standout for this film, you know him, you love him. It's Henry Cavill as mustached August Walker slash John Lark. He is dynamic. He is absolutely a match for Ethan Hunt, both on the crazy department and in the physical ability department. That bathroom fight is one of my favorite fight scenes in a movie ever. If for nothing else, to watch Henry Cavill load his fists as his mustache grows into a beard, it's incredible what this film accomplished. We've also got our standouts, our fun from the Mission Impossible series. Ving Rhames, this might be one of the most important uh, Luther movies. It might be the most important Luther uh, movie when it comes to his uh, inclusion in the series. But Simon Pegg as Benji comes back. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson returns as Ilsa Faust from the previous movie. And she, again, maybe the best long-term the best long-term addition to the series since Ethan Hunt. She might be the best character. It's arguable, but she is incredible. Um, We also get, again, all-star cast when it comes to people who are showing up for the first time. I already talked about Henry Cavill, but we've got Angela Bassett here. Angela Bassett herself? is in this. Uh, Sean Harris returns as Solomon Lane. Vanessa Kirby. Vanessa Kirby uh, is Alana something or other. Uh, She's the White Widow. She is future, hopefully, uh, Emma Frost. She would be incredible. Uh, It's 
it's wild. Also, Michelle Monaghan returns in this film after being away for a while. Alec Baldwin, of course, as the former director of the CIA, who, you know, is also head of the IMF. It's it's just a wonderful cast. And this movie has Ethan and his team at the height of their power before it all gets kind of pulled down around them. And it's wonderful. I just, I, I mean, I love this. I love this film. It's so good. It is the best uh, Ethan Hunt running film, I think, out of them so far. And it's just, it's incredible. I haven't seen a film working at the height of its power when it comes to a long-standing franchise like this maybe since fast five like and fast five was still in the process of was at the very beginning of its metamorphosis at this point you know what a mission impossible film is you know what to expect you know you know tom cruise is going to do something crazy and so this is them on all cylinders. This is, you know, that feeling you get from Infinity War where it's like everybody is just at 10 and crushing every single frame of this. And it's just, it's, it's incredible. But it wasn't revolutionary. We know how good this movie is. It might be the best film when it comes to the, a filmmaking perspective of the franchise. But Mission Impossible Rogue Nation is, for my money, the best Mission Impossible film so far. Uh, came out in 2015, and this was the debut of Christopher McQuarrie in the Mission Impossible franchise. I mean, what is there to say about this movie? This is the debut of um, Alec Baldwin into the series uh, as Alan Hunley back when he's still running the CIA. Um, this gives us more uh, Ethan Hunt, William Brandt, Benji, uh, Luther. This is where we meet Solomon Lane, perhaps the best villain of this entire series. And this gives us Ilsa Faust. This is the debut of Ilsa Faust as a character, and she is, like I said, the most dynamic character brought in after Ethan Hunt, and maybe the best character of the entire franchise. Uh, this is action from start to finish. This is the IMF being questioned and eventually having to go under. Like, this is Tom Cruise at his most batshit insane. This is the crystallization of and I keep saying that but it is the absolute like this is the peak of Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt and it hasn't stopped not saying that um that fallout was him at a lesser he stayed at that peak but this is him reaching the mountaintop as Ethan Hunt as a character and it's it's phenomenal it really genuine, genuinely is. This is the um, this is the beginning of the whole syndicate plot, which would get more or less wrapped up in the next movie. Uh, this is everything that you could want out of a Mission Impossible film, and it is perfection. 
when it comes to that series. I love this film. I will always love this film. And I cannot stop thinking about this film. Even years on, almost 10 years later, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation completely revitalized the franchise and was the guiding light that every film has followed upon since then. And who knows if Dead Reckoning Part 1, the third of the Christopher McQuarrie Mission Impossible films, is going to reach this height. But I hope so. I really, really hope so. Which brings us now to Part 2 of this week's episode, an intro to spy comics. Now, I set out to find five books that would be a great introduction to the spy genre in the realm of comic books. Now, these are five books that I personally think are great representations of the genre, are easy to pick up and hand to somebody who's never read them before, and are just good stories in general. And let me tell you, watching the Mission Impossible films in prep for this episode really got me in that super spy mood so I had to read some comics alongside it so these are the ones that I think you should absolutely take a look at either before or after watching the new movie so Each of these has its own merits, and each one I think you can easily pick up. This isn't a ranked list. Um, These are just five books that I think really do a great job representing the genre. Uh, I will throw a quick honorable mention to Spy Family, or Spy X Family, as it's colloquially and actually phonetically titled. Uh, This is... A great little manga. I personally haven't read it, but I've heard really good things about it from literally everyone that I've spoken to about it. So definitely take a look at this. Uh, it's about three main characters, and apparently there's a bunch of big world building, great character moments, all the big stuff that you'd like in a good comic book. So go check it out. Manga or comics. So uh, definitely worth the honorable mention. But getting into this list... The first one I want to talk about is Black Widow. Now, you can pick out literally any Black Widow book, especially the um, the most recent one, art by Elena Casagrande, and I believe it's written by Kelly Thompson. Um, incredible book. Incredible book. I really, really dig it. The art is stellar. The writing is fantastic. But for me, for my money, uh, I wanted to highlight on this, uh, on this episode, Black Widow by Mark Wade and Chris Somney. I freaking love this book, okay? It is my favorite Black Widow story, and the synopsis goes like this. Natasha has a lifetime of secrets, and when one of the darkest ones are made public, nobody is safe. As S.H.I.E.L.D. turns on its once greatest asset, she seeks out her own answers in a knockdown, drag-out tale of action and espionage. But will the Widow's hunt for the Weeping Lion send her back to the one place she never wanted to go? And, when a S.H.I.E.L.D. funeral makes the attempted top brass an attractive target, it's lucky for them that the Black Widow is still on their side, even if they aren't on hers. So, it's basically Black Widow 
getting disavowed by IMF, I mean, S.H.I.E.L.D., and having to go on the run while still protecting her company and her world's interests. Does that sound familiar? It's basically every single plot of Mission Impossible, at least three of the four movies. And it's just a great comic. It was my... I think it was my introduction into Black Widow Comics. Uh, the team of Wade Insomni just can't miss. See Daredevil by them. See their Captain America run. Uh, they just, they work. They know what they're doing. And this was a great, great comic. Like I said, it's my favorite Black Widow story. And I think this comic for new readers are... I, who are looking for something that is MCU adjacent, that feels like the MCU, who are fans of the MCU as well as just big two comic book fans in general, I think you're going to take a lot from this. If you read this, it's going to give you all the tenets that you would want in a great spy thriller. Lots of intrigue, a winding mystery, Natasha kicks ass, the art is stellar. It's worth checking out, and it's a great intro into the spy genre. Next up, I have Velvet. This is written by Ed Brubaker with art by Steve Epting, and this one, I don't know if a lot of people who are just mainstream comic readers are going to be very, um, let's just say, aware or familiar with. And that's sad because this team who brought us the Captain America run that everyone talks about, that I talked about last week, uh, did it again. Anything that Brubaker touches when it comes to crime, when it comes to spy stuff, is incredible, and the team of Brubaker and Epting is dynamite. So the synopsis for this comic goes like this. When the world's greatest secret agent is killed, all evidence points to Velvet Templeton, the personal secretary to the director of the agency. But Velvet's got a dark secret buried in her past, because she's also the most dangerous woman alive. So this is another one of those on-the-run espionage stories where she's being hunted by the people she used to call her friends. Uh, classic Hitchcockian, uh, the wrong man tropes. And I really, really dig this. Uh, this is going to be a little bit more, let, let's let's say a little bit more gritty, a little bit more adult than the, I think, all-ages style story of the Black Widow book before this. But it's a wonderful spy epic by two masters of their craft. And for me, this is the best intro into uh, spy comics for fans of Brubaker's Captain America. If you loved Brubaker's Captain America run, you were going to fit right into this. If you love that run and you haven't really like dug into anything else by brew baker check this out also check out his daredevil run it's kind of underrated not the best but it's underrated for sure uh i love this book it is something that i don't read often enough and i need to go back more often to it because every single time i do pick it up 
Mwah, chef's kiss it is so freaking good again steve epting's art works so well at this point him and brew baker just know how to work well with each other and they are two masters of their craft so they are going to absolutely knock everything out of the park and they do on a regular basis so that's my second pick my third pick is grayson this is written by tim seeley and tom king with art by Mikkel janine um I mean, come on. You know what I'm doing. You know, I, you knew it was going to be on here. You're talking about spies and superheroes and comic books. You knew this was going to be on here. It's me. Uh, synopsis goes like this. As Robin, he was the Dark Knight's partner and protege. As Nightwing, he forged a heroic legacy of his own. And when vicious killers invaded our dimension, he sacrificed his secret identity and his life to save the world. At least, that's what the world believes. That is revisionist history, by the way. To the heroes, villains, and ordinary citizens of Earth, Dick Grayson is dead. But death is the perfect cover story for an agent of Spiral. As the newest member of this top-secret spy ring, Grayson helps scour the globe for the pieces of the Paragon, a slain god whose every organ is a weapon of mass destruction. But he's also Batman's man inside Spiral, uncovering their secrets even as they strive to uncover the secret identity of every superhero on the globe. His life as he knew it is over. His loyalty is divided like never before. Now it's time for Dick Grayson to to discover who he really is. I have seen the future of international espionage and Dick Grayson is a part of it. I freaking love this book. I was very upset at the conclusion of Forever Evil and at the conclusion of Tim Seeley's absolutely stellar New 52 Nightwing run when they decided to shift gears and kill him off, quote unquote, and then give him this new identity as Grayson, Agent 37 of Spiral. Uh, if you listened along with our book club earlier this year when we covered Grant Morrison's Batman, Gmo's Spiral was one of the best, you know, one of the best things that they introduced into the series among a handful, two handfuls, I'll even say, of incredible things that they introduced into the Batman mythos. But having this be more or less a spiritual successor to that run by taking all of those disparate pieces and putting them into a brand new story years and years later makes me smile. And just putting Dick Grayson at the heart of it, of course, is amazing. Mikhail Janine. You know how good he is. Uh, his stuff is legendary. Anytime that he works with Tom King, it is magic. And Tim Seeley and Tom King do a great job balancing the tones of Dick. This was Tom King getting ready to move into the Batman role uh, with Rebirth a couple years later. And... You can tell how much he loves the world of the Bat family, how much he loves the wider DC universe. And Tim Seeley, not for nothing, a wonderful writer who, like I said, was crushing it on that Nightwing book. And again, 
Super underrated. You should go back, check that out. It's one of the best runs in the New 52. And when Editorial basically told him, you are doing this now, he took it. He took that ball and ran with it. And so it's a wonderful story of superhero transitioning into spycraft and a kind of fish-out-of-water story where you are getting the introduction to this world, where you're getting the introduction to how spy and espionage uh, war is way aged within the DC universe and it's a great introduction to those themes for readers who maybe are more familiar with superhero comics and not as familiar with spy comics in fact I think this is not just the best intro to spy comics for them but also just the best intro for Batman fans who already have that predisposition of being invested in Dick Grayson as a character and now you get to see him dip into an entirely new world and so you get to take all of the all of the, not the baggage, but all of the experience you have with this character into this brand new era for him. I will say, I don't think it lasted long enough. That's just me. Uh, I do think that Tim Drake would also excel in this spot, but uh, wonderful story. It's all collected as well, so go pick it up. It rules. At number four, we have Queen and Country. This is written by Greg Rucka with art by Steve Rolston, Mike Hawthorne, Chris Somney, as well as a bunch of other wonderful artists. Let's just dig into the synopsis so I can talk about this. As part of the special section of Britain's Ministry of Intelligence, Tara Chase is one of a handful of operatives they call when they need to clean up a mess, or to make a new one. It's a world of questionable morals. For instance, is it better to assassinate a general in the Russian Mafia rather than allow him to peddle more guns and drugs in underprivileged countries? countries? Tara's bosses seem to think so, but the Russian mafia ask their own question. Once someone has taken the life of one of their officers, can they continue to let that person live? So Queen and Country is this comic that ran for quite a while, in fact, and Greg Rucka, who is the patron saint of crime and spy comics, really dug into this. This is another, um, creator own just like velvet was and this one with its base in britain you get that you know high society espionage that you would normally see in like a james bond or something of that ilk but also with the added i don't know americanisms of just the the art the writing is really stellar and writing that you would easily see in a mission impossible film and the rotating cast of artists which is something that i don't usually love does a great job in separating each chapter of this of course i am i mean i'm biased towards the final arc i believe it's issues 28 through 32 of the of the series is illustrated by chris somney so of course i love it but steve rolston who kicks off the whole thing comes back multiple in multiple arcs is a master of what he does really really talented and does a great job in communicating he does a great job in communicating um what is what is the word the kinetic nature of action and what i mean by that is there are certain artists that do a great job in navigating and illustrating and communicating how kinetic a movement or an action set piece is daniel warren johnson might be the best at this at communicating speed 
power, endurance, impact. And Steve Rolston does a great job in that as well, albeit on a much less uh uh, on a much less exaggerated scale. Uh, this also has the benefit of some really solid Tim Sale covers. Miss Tim Sale all the time, and if you are itching for some Tim Sale that you might not be familiar with, his cover work on this series is dynamite. Definitely pick this up. Don't sleep on this one. Um, this book is filled with political intrigue, globe-hopping action, lots of twists and turns, all of the stuff that you would want in a spy comic, this one has it. It's also one of the longer runs in this list. Uh, it's 30-something issues. Definitely give it a, a read. It is a wonderful story by people who are very good at what they do. And speaking of people who are very good at what they do, continuing on the Greg Rucka train, the final book on this list, I had to do it. It's Checkmate. It's Checkmate. You know, I am not a big Checkmate fan, just typically, just in general. I don't love how it's usually utilized. Except in this very specific instance. Uh, this is written by Greg Rucker with art by Jesus Saez. This is during, or I guess in the fallout and the aftermath of Infinite Crisis. And this book is something special for me. Because it's a book I desperately did not want to like going into it. <laughs> but let's, let's dig into this synopsis. In the wake of Infinite Crisis, the world remains a dangerous place, with new metahuman threats and political battles spiraling out of control at any given moment. There is a desperate need to hold the line against destruction. There is a need, once more, for checkmate. Rechartered by the United Nations and governed by a quote-unquote rule of two that ensures joint partnership between human and metahuman leaders, the Covert Operations Agency acts as the intelligence intervention force seeking to establish order and maintain in an increase and balance, maintain balance in an increasingly unbalanced world. Check out this roster, right? With core members Green Lantern, Mr. Terrific, Fire, and Sasha Bordeaux, Checkmate as a formidable group, but will they be able to deal with the rising threats while contending with their own internal moral battles? This comic is perfection. When you're talking about spycraft, when you're talking about bombastic action, when you're talking about huge high stakes, when you're talking about characters who are dynamic both alone and in group scenes, this book's got it all. That roster alone. And by the way, when I say Green Lantern, I don't mean Hal Jordan. I don't mean John Stewart. I don't mean Guy Gardner. I mean Alan Scott. <laughs> Old man Alan Scott himself comes in for this book and is incredible. Amanda Waller also features heavily in this series as well. It's just a great, great story. And it's, the, for my money, it's the perfect blend of superhero comics and spy espionage novels right it's got all of the world building you'd expect which does it does have the benefit of having that established world but it does a great job in recontextualizing that world uh recontextualizing certain characters certain events even and certain geography when it comes to how this world's game is played that it makes you look at the dc universe in a whole new light i'm i'm trying to stay really really uh 
I'm trying to dance around these spoilers for each of these books because I want you to read them. They're incredible. Um, but this book does a great job, I think, in kind of being the platonic ideal of superhero spy comic, where if you are a fan of... I mean, it's really for anybody wanting to get into the stuff. But if you're a fan of superheroes and you're wanting to get into espionage books, this is the perfect book for that. A lot of people, I think, will be surprised that I left... Um, that I left Brubaker's Cap off the list. First of all, I got to talk about it plenty last week. But also, this does everything that the Brubaker Cap run does, but it has a rotating ensemble cast where you get to see how the events of the story affect each and every one of them. Not all of them are created equal in the story, but Greg Rucka has a has a gift with ensemble casts. He always has. And it's just a wonderful book and absolutely worth your time, especially if you're just getting into these kinds of stories. So that's that's it. The five comics to give you an introduction into spy comics. From here, you can branch out, do more Brubaker stuff, check out Spy vs. Spy, a bunch of different comics that you can look at after reading these. This is just an intro. This is just a beginning. And believe me, just like the first Mission Impossible movie way back in the year 1996, your journey in the world of spycraft is just beginning. Y'all didn't really think I was going to get away with not talking about this show, did you? This is the weekly review where I review something weekly. And this week I am tossing Secret Invasion to the side. I will review episodes uh, three and four next week. But right now I want to talk about my adventures with Superman. Let's just let's just talk about this. You knew I had to talk about this. I've been waiting for this show ever since it was announced, ever since we saw that first still of an anime style Superman show, I have been ready, willing, and able to accept this show into my heart as yet another incredible piece of Superman media in really a great time of Superman media. I mean, we've got the announcements for Superman Legacy, uh, Corin Sweat, Brosnahan, they're incredible. We've got this going on. We've got the incredible Superman comic by Williamson and Campbell, and we've got Superman and Lois as a live-action Superman on TV. Like, this is one of the best times to be a Superman fan, and this show gives you just another reason to be extra hyped. But let's 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 talk about this show, okay? So this is basically Superman the anime. And you heard it from the intro there. That is the anime style opening for this show. I don't I haven't seen the um I haven't seen the opening be used in the first two episodes because the first two episodes dropped as of this recording uh this past week and it didn't use it 
I'm just assuming that that's because it's the two-parter. They don't want to use the opening yet. And hopefully, fingers crossed, they'll be using that opening going forward. But I really... I This show is everything I wanted when I was a kid. I mean, I absolutely adore Superman the Animated Series. You know how much I love Superman the Animated Series. But I was a little Asian-American boy who liked my anime. I loved Dragon Ball. I loved Yu-Gi-Oh. I loved Yu Yu Hakusho. And I, as an adult, continued to love anime. And combining anime with Superman, it's two of my great loves. And it's just a match made in heaven. It really is. We got the two-part premiere. It's under an hour to watch. Do yourself a favor. Go on not hobo max and go watch the first two episodes if you don't have it if you don't have max they put it up on youtube they put the first episode up on youtube free of charge for everyone to watch so you can go watch it right now free of charge just go on youtube my adventures of superman they got the first episode up there in full and it's just it's 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 perfect it's perfect it's perfect. And this show, first of all, let's let's talk about that anime influence and the designs and everybody. Um, absolutely a wonderfully timeless metropolis. It feels like it draws upon a lot of the stuff that we are used to in Superman iconography while also giving it that very unique anime spin. Uh, this fits right in there with San Francisco from the Big Hero 6 movie uh, and the comics as well. But I love the aesthetic of it. It feels familiar while also giving little things and little twists that make it feel new. Um, the designs for everybody are immaculate. The only problem that I have with this is that Jimmy does not have a bow tie. Where are Jimmy's bow ties? We did see that certain characters do change clothes, so we'll see if they do so in the episodes going forward, and maybe he'll get a bow tie, maybe he won't. I don't want this to be a situation where Jimmy has to earn his bow tie, but I... I I'll, I'll be there hooting and hollering whenever he does earn that bow tie. Um, Lois is a great design for the character. Very different from, I think, what a lot of people are used to. I mean, honestly, she looks closer just on a base design-wise to, like, a Selena Kyle than a Lois Lane. But I don't dislike it whatsoever, especially because these are supposed to be kind of younger versions of our characters. They start off this show as interns at the Daily Planet, Lois included. She's been there for a little bit, but she's still an intern. And so giving everyone this kind of fresh, young, anime-style coat of paint really does a great job in not only paying homage to stuff we've seen from the past, but also giving us a unique spin. Uh, Clark is perfect. Clark is absolutely perfect. You know, the moment that I knew that I was going to love this show... Besides everything, uh, <laughs> the moment that I knew that this was going to be an all-timer, Clark is jogging to this uh, local uh, bodega slash bakery where he's picking up donuts for his new co-workers. And he's jogging along. He's like, today you're just a normal guy and you're going to have a normal day. And he sees way off in the distance this cat stuck in a tree while its owner is 
this little girl is posting up missing cat signs and he just like kind of looks around makes sure nobody nobody's watching swoops in faster than a speeding bullet picks this cat out of the tree hands it back to the owner and continues on his way and he resp- he does this self talk that I do to myself all the time I self talk all the time but he does this little self talk where he's like well I had to save the cat like of course I had to save the cat and it's like yes of course he did because he's superman I oh, man the characterization here is incredible the voice cast is absolutely phenomenal. I want to, let me pull these up because I want to shout these out. They are worth talking about. Um, Alice Lee as Lois Lane is incredible. Dynamic, uh, spicy, really, really fun. And she's got this headstrong, determined air about her that I really appreciate. Uh, Ishmael Saheed as Jimmy Olsen, incredible. Uh, Some of the names that... I don't think get as much play um, that we're going to see here. Reed Scott and Carrie Walgren as Pa and Ma Kent, respectively. Daryl Brown as Perry White is wonderful. Zara Fasal does a great job across the first two episodes as Livewire, and I didn't even realize she was Livewire until near the end of the second episode. And we got we got Deathstroke. Chris Parnell as Deathstroke. I. This little anime boy, Deathstroke. I don't know how I feel about the design. It might grow on me. We'll see. But Jack Quaid as Clark is incredible. We knew he was going to be good. He's kind of become the poster boy for that, you know, young, uh, young Hollywood everyman type that like a young Paul Rudd used to fill. Uh, you look at his stuff, obviously the boys, but also I, th- I think he's in Oppenheimer. Um, he's doing this. He played um, Peter Parker from Spider-Gwen's world and across the Spider-Verse. He's killing it right now. Big ups to him. I'm glad that he's doing so well. I mean, Boimler in uh, Star Trek below, uh, Lower Decks. Great, great actor. He's doing phenomenal. And his voice for Clark is very clearly still Jack Quaid. But I'm hoping to grow into it when it comes to his uh, his portrayal of Superman. It's wonderful. It's incredible. He does a great job. And the Superman design. How did I know that this was a Chris Anka design? I don't know what it was, but something about it screamed Chris Anka. And lo and behold, he talks about it on Twitter this past week. I just, he's crushing it right now. This is the Chris Anka songs, and I am absolutely here for it um there's lots of intrigue going on lots of easter eggs obviously and we do know that there's some shady shady behind the scenes stuff amanda waller is there which means shady stuff is happening uh with reckless abandon but overall i freaking love this show from its anime, very uh, My Hero Academia, all for one full cowling, or one for all full cowling. Uh, anytime uh, Clark's, um, Clark's powers manifest themselves, y'all can get get out of here. Oh, you don't have lightning powers. It's an anime choice. Deal with it. This is stylistically what it is. This is the flavor of the show. If you don't want that, Go watch Superman the Animated Series. It is there for you. I love this show. I am absolutely in for the ride for the rest of the season. I can't believe it took us this long to get a show like this. And I will be tuning up 
every single week for this show, regardless of what else I've got going on. I absolutely love this. I had a blast and a half, and I cannot wait to see what comes next. Uh, sorry if you were expecting a secret uh, secret empire, secret invasion uh, review. I'll drop both the episode three and episode four for next week. Um, I just, I had to talk about this. I had to talk about this show. I'm sorry. I had to, it's me, but that is going to do it for this week's uh, weekly review. Tune in next week for episodes three and four of secret invasion. But for now, let's roll right on into this week's comics countdown. Oh, and I forgot about the giant robots, the Odin-looking Jorel. I can't believe the ship looks freaking huge. I don't know what that means. Are we going to be getting more stuff? That what else is that? Is that turn into the Fortress of Solitude? I don't know. I don't know. It's such a big ship. Like it's way too big for just him. And with all the weird, freaky-looking tech around there, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But welcome back to this week's comics countdown. This is the segment of our show where I'll be chatting you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, whether it's at a local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you pick up your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explained Pick of the Week of last week. And, I mean, this was really tough. This was probably one of the more difficult weeks that I've had uh, choosing a pick of the week. But ultimately, it's, I mean, it is Captain America 750. It is. It really is. But also, Doctor Strange, number five. This series is an all-timer, and I need y'all to be reading this. Um, As it stands, Captain America 750 was incredible. A great love letter, a great just salute, no pun intended, to Captain America for 750 issues. Absolutely deserves every accolade it's been getting. But that's last week. This week, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight books for you to pick up. So let's dig into this. But let's I, I just wanna I just wanna clear the air on this. I want to make this kind of a blanket statement. I am not particularly interested in night terrors. It's not something that I'm really, you know, hyped for. It's not something that I'm really excited for, and it's not something that I'm really going to be tuning in for, because it's just not my cup of tea. And they've mentioned that, yes, the Night Terrors event is going to be taking over these books, but then it's business as usual once it's over. So I am taking this time to kind of take a break from certain books to allow that Night Terror stuff to kind of run its course. I won't be picking up any of these Night Terror books. With the exception of these two books, I say all that, and I'm not going to be picking up the Night Terror stuff, but there are two books that you need to be reading from this event, and one of them is Night Terror's Zatanna. Now, this is purely because of Creative Team and because of the character. Creative Team, written by Dennis Culver, art by David Baldion. I 
I love this creative team. And it's also Dennis Culver has been killing it on Doom Patrol. Why do I mention that? Well, let's dig into the synopsis. Anatasi Cab. Zatanna, one of the last people awake on Earth, must defend her unconscious allies, Wonder Woman and Detective Chimp, from Insomnia's Sleepless Nights, led by their horrifying Sleepless Queen. But the outnumbered Zatanna can't do it alone. She uses her magic to summon any champion that is still awake, which puts her in an unlikely team-up with one of the world's strangest superheroes, the unstoppable Doom Patrol's Robot Man. Now, the reason that I want you to pick up this book is because Zatanna doesn't get any love. Zatanna doesn't get any books. And the fact that Dennis Culver, who has been crushing it on Unstoppable Doom Patrol, is giving us a highlight Zatanna book while also sneakily joining that up with Doom Patrol, it's just, it's it's perfection. It's chef's kiss. You need to be picking this up. The other one is Night Terror's Shazam, number one. Uh, mostly, I mean, creative team, Mark Wade, Roger Cruz, absolutely crushing it. Roger Cruz coming hot off the heels of uh, One Minute War, Mark Wade, Mark Wade. And this Shazam book is crushing it. I know it's only been a couple issues, but I've loved both of them. And this one is promising to have Mary front and center, which we all need. So let's let's read the synopsis. Enter Teth Shazam. Of all Earth's heroes, Billy Batson is the only one in double danger, because he and the captain are each haunted by their own set of nightmares. And if the world's mightiest mortal can't survive his own fears, what chance does the rest of the Shazamily have? I, I still don't love it. Why not Shazam fam? I, I don't know. But... This is really interesting. It's something that I I really hope that they develop as we go forward of the captain and Billy being two separate entities combined into one person. But that being said, this needs to be a Mary story. This needs to be Mary doing her thing, overcoming the nightmares and the night terrors and becoming the hero here. So that's what I hope. Go pick up both of those books. Feel free to skip the rest of Night Terrors. Getting into the rest of the list. First up, I've got Danger Street number seven. This is written by Tom King with art by Jorge Fornes. This book continues to be a sleeper hit, and I feel like it's going to be an incredible binge read. Once all of the issues come out, you are going to devour the trade. As it stands, month to month, it's still really intriguing, but there are things that I forget. (laughs) So... Let's dig into the synopsis and find out what's next in store. Chapter 7, The Creeper. As Lady Cop gets closer to solving this murder mystery, she finds herself in the lair of the true killers, the Green Team. But who will be her knight in shining armor and save the maiden fair? Beware the Creeper. Plus, Warlord strikes up an unlikely friendship and allegiances begin to form as the march toward the battle to save the universe begins. It's just, I mean, yeah, it's all you need. It's all you need. Next up, we have Superman Lost, number five. This is written by Christopher Priest with art by Carlo Pagulian. 
And this book has been fantastic as well. As I've stated before, Superman meets Castaway. It's a wonderful story. And seeing Clark be a fish out of water in both the past and present has been really, really captivating. And I love this story. Let's dig into the synopsis. At a loss to close the widening gap between herself and Superman, Lois turns to Wonder Woman for help. Clark Kent, attempting to re-enter his life of the Daily Planet, is haunted by the dire consequences of his attempts to defend his second adopted planet from invasion. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that didn't go too well, but we'll find out! We'll find out when this issue drops. I have been loving this series, and I can't wait to pick up this next issue. Next up, we have Scarlet Witch number six. This is written by Steve Orlando with art by Sarah Pacelli, Pacelli Cinderella, as well as Lorenzo Tometa. And this is what I've been waiting for. Just looking at the cover alone. I've been waiting for this. Scarlet Witch being reunited with her son Wiccan and his husband, Teddy. Teddy is his name. I, I mean, come on. I, I, I love, I love that this is the story that they're finally getting to tell. It's, I mean, it's, it's been a while. It's been a while in the making. Uh, we really haven't had a dedicated Wiccan Scarlet Witch story since the trial of the Scarlet Witch. And even then, he didn't really have a main role to play in that story. But I'm excited about this. Let's dig into the synopsis. Family matters. Wanda's loyalties are tested when an enemy of the Kree Skrull Empire falls through the last door, desperate for help avenging their fallen comrades. Will Wanda honor the commitment she made to helping those in need, whoever they are, or will her love for her son Wiccan and his husband Hulkling triumph over all? Plus, a familiar figure appears at Wanda's shop, and it seems rumors of his death have been greatly exaggerated. But does he come as friend or foe? So this is getting into the reveal at the end of the last arc that Magneto might be alive. I'm still holding on to hope that it's Joseph and Magneto is dead dead for a good long while, but we'll just have to see when this issue drops on Wednesday. That's just me. I am hoping against hope because that Magneto death needs to mean something. Next up, we have Spirit World number three. Read Spirit World. You need to read this. Uh, written by Alyssa Wong, art by Haining. Read this book. Read this book. Read this book. I've been threatening to be in your walls. And those of you who haven't been reading it, I'm already there. I need you to read this book because the first two issues were absolutely dynamite and we need to continue to make this book a success so let's dig into the synopsis so you can so you can continue to know why you need to keep reading this book Xanthi and Constantine find a one-way ticket to the spirit world and must interrogate spirits to find Batgirl. But how do you do that without alerting the spirits that there's a human walking among them? Then, Cass and Popo go to a friend of Bowen's in hopes of finding a great or finding a way back to, into the living, a fox spirit who has a secret of his own. Alyssa uh, Wong absolutely crushing it they know the kind of story that they're trying to tell and it really does uh it, it works on all levels all levels the dual narrative the introduction and 
elaboration, I guess, on Xanthi as they get to really give us a window into what's going on with them. The entire idea of the scratched out dead naming from last issue is a stroke of genius, and Wong should be really proud of that because it resonated with so many people and was also an incredible storytelling device that we don't often see. So I've been loving this book. You better have been loving this book. You better be loving this book right now or again. I will find you. Next up, we have Immortal X-Men number 13. This is written by Kieran Gillen with art by Lucas Wernick, and everything is burning. Everything is falling. Um, we are uh, on the doorstep. We are on the doorstep of the Hellfire Gala, and every indication has been that this is where something bad happens. This is where the fall happens. So let's let's... Dig into the synopsis. Part 13. Listen closely. Time is running out. Fall is here. Doug Ramsey is the voice of Krakoa. It's time for Krakoa to speak. Ominous, ominous. I'm very, very intrigued. I don't know what's going to happen, and I can't wait to find out. But the big book of the week alongside Spirit World and Immortal X-Men, of course, is, of course, World's Finest Teen Titans number one. This is written by Mark Wade with art by Emanuela Lupacino. I... 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 I love this book. I am so excited about this. I I might be picking up multiple covers of this just because I love it so much. I freaking adore this whole idea. Going back in time with the world's finest imprint and giving stories of heroes of days gone by. I... I love the idea, and I love that the Teen Titans are on this. I love that we've got a modern-day Titans book, and now we're going to have a Teen Titans book. Maybe to give supplemental material for the Titans book. Maybe to just to tell its own story and further build out the rest of the world's finest stuff going on. We still aren't 100% convinced that this is all canon. I mean, there were things from the world, the main world's finest book that have influenced, but this is comics, baby. Continuity is fast and loose in these here parts. So we'll just have to see. Overall, I'm loving the vibe. I'm loving the character roster here. Really, really excited. Let's dive into the synopsis. Spinning out of the pages of the runaway hit Batman Superman World's Finest comes a modern retelling of the early adventures of the original Teen Titans. Led by Robin the Boy Wonder, a new super team has burst onto the scene. Meet the Teen Titans, DC's grooviest group filled with... Groovy's group, I love it. Uh, filled with super teens with super problems. When they're not fighting alongside their Justice League mentors, they're managing their image and cultivating the rabid fan base that helps them save the world. As, all the while, a danger from the shadows intends to tear these friends apart before they even reach the big time. Before they were the Titans of the DCU, they were the Teen Titans. And you won't want to miss this fresh take on their origins from the legendary talents of Mark Wade and Emanuela Lupacino. Yes! 
Yes! I am so excited about this. This is going to be incredible. Cannot wait to pick this up for sure. But that is going to do it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we've got Night Terror Zatanna number one and Night Terror Shazam number one. Again, only pick up those books. Skip the rest of Night Terrors. Feel free. Uh, Danger Street number seven. Superman Lost number five. Scarlet Witch number six. Spirit World number three. Immortal X-Men number 13. And World's Finest Teen Titans number one. You know, looking back at the Teen Titans, there's this saying that you don't know when the good times are here until they've already passed. So why not seize the day and make right now the good old days by going into your comic shop and picking up some good old comics. And that is going to bring us to the wrap up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplain podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday and honestly, ratings, reviews, and subscriptions really do help me and the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, raises up our stock and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here on the podcast. You can write literally anything you want. I will be forced to read every single word that you write, but as long as you give me those five stars, the sky's the limit on what you can make me say. As within reason, within reason. Um, I am still trying to get five more. All I want, five more, five more reviews Five more five-star reviews to read here on the podcast before August 12th. I think we can do it, gang. We got a month. I think we can do it. I think we have the power. But you will also, as well as me reading your review here on the podcast, be able to join our amazing Fantasy 15, including Seafire ND, Joshua Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, Alok and AZ, Sass, Jedi Jesse 20, Ken4656, and Director Hall. I want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear you. If you want to be part of the Geeksplained mailbag, send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com, put mailbag in the subject header, and they will be read here on the Wednesday show. If you want to keep up to date with the podcast, participate in polls that decide future episodes, maybe you just want to shoot the shit with me on the latest geeky news, or maybe you want first updates and notifications and announcements when big things are happening on the podcast, feel free to follow us at Pod on Instagram and Twitter as I continue to try to get better at Instagram, and for as long as Twitter is around before we inevitably let it collapse i'm still waiting on my invite code still waiting on my invite code for that blue sky stuff we'll 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 make it happen we'll get there we'll see but i i also hear threads is a thing uh, maybe we'll have to do a threads thing we'll see we'll see but for right now instagram and twitter at geeksplained pod is the place to go to keep up to date with us finally this Friday and every Friday, my good brothers and I, Malcolm Russell Nelson and Jacob Brown, put on the Geek Explained 
Book Club, where we are tackling every single issue of every single volume of The Flash Rebirth. We just wrapped up last Friday the negative arc, where The Flash was nearly consumed by the negative speed force, and he is face-to-face now with Nina Dewan as we dig into Volume 6 this week with A Cold Day in Hell. Lots of stuff coming to roost, lots of um, twist and turns that we are going to be encountering this week, so stay tuned for that. Tune in this Friday and every Friday for the Geeksplain Book Club. Flash Fridays are a real thing, so be there or be square, not a circle. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for a brand new episode of the podcast. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for the Geek Explained podcast, I have been Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening. Everybody stay safe, and we will see you next time. 